Thanks, y'all. Well, happy New Year. Uh, it's probably the last weekend we could say that, but uh, happy New Year uh, to you all. Uh, I'm sure all of us have set our goals and we'll work out for at least a month uh, before we stop. Uh, and you know, all the other pieces that many of us aim for that uh, come up short, but hopefully this is the year, right, uh, that we, we stick to it. Um, my name's Chris, I'm a pastor and elder here. I don't know if I said that already. Uh, and uh, we are picking back up uh, in the book of Matthew. Uh, we took a bit of a hiatus uh, from Thanksgiving till now uh, as we've uh, kind of walked through the Advent season and some main traditional sort of topics like hope and joy and, uh, and love. And so uh, we're gonna kind of get back into Matthew uh, for now and uh, see how far we get into the year before we take another break. Uh, but well, we got some work to do, we're about just about halfway through the book, uh, which took us about a year to get through. So we'll see uh, what 2024 holds for us. Uh, but Matthew 13 will be where we are. Uh, we're also going to jump back to, the, to sort of the experience of, of reading and, and asking some questions uh, collectively uh, as a room uh, before we, we kind of dive into the teaching. So Matthew 13, starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to, uh, and they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out uh, of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the initial questions of what... What, what is puzzling in what you just read? What maybe even stands out? What, um, what do you maybe confuse or what um, you feel like needs a little clarity? What um, kind of stands out having read maybe something you've read before uh, as you read it this time? Oh, that's good. There's definitely uh, sometimes that dynamic of some of the texts that uh, talk about giving up everything or selling everything you have and um, what does that look like as a believer? Um, well, we won't dive into that question today, and I'll, we'll, you'll see why when I start dealing with the text, but um, it'll probably come up later in Matthew. That's, that's a wonderful question. That's a question for all the parables. It's like, who, who are each of the actors in the story? Like, um, who are they supposed to represent? And so I, I, that we will cover today, uh, certainly. Yeah, there's, uh, and, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of connection points to other things that are happening. Uh, even, even sort of the couplet of two really short and then like a, a, a parable about sorting things, which we just had uh, back now in November, but a parable, really, two really short parables and then a whole parable about sorting things. And so um, you have him doing that and some of the language is similar. So there's treasures and a parable about treasure, but then we start talking about treasures old and new. And so... Um, yeah, I think it's always the thing that, one of the things that I think this Q&A time, I think hopefully accomplishes is a, a little bit of a de-elevating of, of the stage. Um, 
And part of that is because like, I have those questions too. And I haven't made all the connection points of like how that treasure connects to this treasure over here. And, and it's stuff that I'm still learning and, and, and diving in. And so I think these are wonderful questions. And that one, I, like I thought about this week, but I'm like, I don't, I don't know exactly where the connection point is. And yeah, but they're really important questions. And I think that's why you can go back to scripture over and over and mine more and find more truth and more that God wants to reveal. And I think that's a wonderful part of the process. These are great questions. I'll probably leave you with more questions after my sermon too. So, um, but, but let's dive in. Uh, in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, which will date me quite a bit, like baseball cards were the thing. They just were. And my dad and I would go to the mall, which malls, people went to malls, uh, on a Saturday, and there were booths set up all throughout the mall down there in Hollywood, Florida. And you would go, and there'd be all these booths with little glass containers with all these baseball cards all on display. And there were old cards. You'd have unopened boxes of new cards, all different types. And we would go hunting, you know, for the, for the perfect deal, for that card that was undervalued, that that one collector just didn't really know how much he had, that diamond in the rough. Or maybe we were looking for that 1990s unboxed upper deck uh, box that has a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card in it. Like, all these things that we would be on the hunt for. Now, those years were also heavily inundated with baseball cards. And so all of us that spent all of our time trying to collect these things have come to find out now they are mostly worthless and collecting a lot of dust. And so uh, that's what happens when demand or supply outpaces your demand, uh, especially as you age. But not all cards are worthless. Sometimes there's a card for one reason or another that has just an incredibly high value. Do you know what the most expensive baseball card is? Or who it is? For the longest time, it was Honus Wagner. And most of us would be like, who is Honus Wagner? And you'd be right, because he never really panned out to be anybody really significant in baseball. Um, he just has an extremely rare card because he was, um, he was a teetotaler. He was a, uh, he was a prohibitionist. And baseball cards during his time were used as like currency for alcohol. And he didn't want his card to be printed. And so there's so few of them that they became incredibly valued. But just last year, his card got beat out by Topps number 311 from 1952, which is Mickey Mantle's rookie card in pristine condition, sold for $12.6 million. And most of you are like, I should look, look over my dusty cards <laughs> just to see. Because perhaps there's something of, of great value that you could stumble upon, that you could find. And what would you do for it? What would you do? What would be your reaction to find something that's worth $12.6 million suddenly? Or maybe you were like the man uh, in England who accidentally threw away his computer that had $120 million worth of Bitcoin on it and has sought to like buy the, the dump, the, the city dump, so he could search through it and find his $120 million worth of Bitcoin. Now, some of you are like, I should book a flight to England, um, help him look for it. But this great value, what does it cause you to do? How does it cause you to react? Because we have these stories of somebody finding something of value and doing whatever they could to gain it, right? That's, that's the, the parallel of at least those first two stories that both the treasure hunter and the merchant find something so precious, so worthy, so valuable that they are willing 
to give up everything for it. And, and we do have these parallels, these stories, and I think that'll tie in particularly in the later story. But let's look at that first story uh, now, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Now, there's a, there's a pretty traditional interpretation of this, and, and, and the traditional sort of interpretation is, look, the, the, there's the, the kingdom is the treasure, like, the, the, the kingdom itself of God is the treasure. That we are the, the man who comes across the kingdom of God and we give up everything for the sake of the kingdom of God. And hear me. Great. I, I think that's a, a legitimate, true thing. I think all those concepts are true. We can find all those concepts elsewhere in Scripture, right? That, that we would count the cost before we become a disciple, that we would um, be willing, just as the, the rich young ruler, be willing to sell everything in order to follow Jesus. I think all of those things are true statements that, that we will find in, in Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching as well. The reason I take a different route, I, I just don't, I'm just not sure that's exactly what Jesus means here. Because I think there's, there's three reasons. One, we can't find the kingdom, at least not on our own. Two, we can't hide the kingdom of God. And three, we don't buy it, right? We can't find it on our own. That's actually the Holy Spirit's job to lead us into or to help us find the kingdom of God. Um, we can't hide the kingdom of God. I think there's some teaching around hiding the light that is inside us. But the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, I don't know if we could hide that whole thing. And, and then we certainly can't buy it. The kingdom of heaven is not for sale, and even if it was, we certainly couldn't afford the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And I think for those three, and one additional reason, I think what Jesus might be saying here might be something completely different. And we've already heard that the field is the world, just a few verses before, right? Jesus has said this in other parables, the field is like the world. And so I would continue that until Jesus has actually given us a different parameter. And constantly, the main character in the story tends to actually be like the, the, the person who owns the field or the person who is uh, putting the mustard seed in the ground or the person with the, the leaven tends to actually be God in how we've walked through these stories up to this point. And I think then the treasure is actually us. That we get the story a little bit backwards. That God as king and his kingdom, what Jesus might be saying is not, hey, um, the man found a treasure, but the treasure was obligated uh, and God had this very uh, uh, stick by his people. But, but no, that Jesus had actually come to say, this is what the kingdom is like. It's about a God who so loves, who so, um, I, I have the tablet and I'm not even using um, who, who so loves, who so uh, pursues his people that he's willing to give up everything for him. And, and I think um, when we see in other parables, like I said, I think God has been the main character of these stories. So why would we suddenly shift to, well, it's really us that are, are being the people in the field or the rich merchant. Because once again, one of the things I think that the parables, particularly in a, a Jewish writer like Matthew, who is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, parables constantly have Old Testament tie-ins, 
And we will see this as we continue. There's always something sort of being referenced, being alluded to as the storyteller tells, as Jesus tells these stories, and as Matthew recaps these stories. And so perhaps there's something in the Old Testament that would actually make us think, all right, maybe this is what Jesus is talking about. And we will see today, Ezekiel will come up multiple times, and he will come up throughout all the parables, because I think it's so image-rich of an Old Testament book that Jesus uses it a lot to tell his stories. But here's a text from Ezekiel 16. This is God speaking about Israel as a nation. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things uh, to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out in an open field. You were bored, and on the day you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I saw you in your blood. Live, I said to you out of your blood. Live, and I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. So we get this unique story, this this image that is told of God as saying, look, Israel, you were like cast out into a field. And when I came along you in the field, I took you in. And I I treasured you. I I adorned you. I, I made you flourish in those moments. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, which we've already seen a lot of this sort of um, agricultural uh, imagery in these, in these, song, or these uh, parables that we've just uncovered. He says, you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Um, or the NASB says, you reached the age of fine jewelry, which is um, kind of a tie-in to some of the way the Hebrew speaks. You were fully adorned. You were fully jeweled. You were like this, this precious jewel to me. And there's no Hebrew word for the word pearl, but if you were to translate the Greek back into the Hebrew, this jeweled idea would have been completely appropriate to describe what a pearl is like. And so God found a treasure in Ezekiel, in in his people. He took care of it so that it would become, become beautifully pearled, beautifully jeweled, which makes sense to go right into the next story. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold it for all that he had and bought it. And so if we continue with this, the, the concept then, I think, is that you are important enough that when God finds his people, when God is seeking and saving the lost, there's nothing he would not do to acquire. He would sell it all, which is literally the gospel. That the God of the universe left his place to come into this world because God so loved the world, because his very mission was to seek and save the lost, that he came into this world and was willing to to give up everything, even life itself, for his treasure, his people. He was willing to buy it as his own. Josh Ryan Butler says this, the pursuing God comes boldly after us, discovers us in the distant land, and gives all that is most valuable to have him, have us. The Father loves us enough to give his most valuable prized possession, the deepest treasure of his heart, his Son. The Son loves us enough to give his very life to be rejected, mocked, and murdered, to take on our sin and death. And the Spirit loves us enough to give himself, pouring God's love into our hearts and filling us with God's very presence to unite us through Christ to the Father. God sells the farm to bring us home. Jesus is a treasure-hunting merchant, and we're the buried gold. Because I think it makes sense. If we look at the points I brought up of why I think it's a struggle, let's relook. Jesus is the one who finds us. 
right? If we think we find Jesus on our own, that, that just doesn't work. But Jesus is a finder, as we've already seen. Jesus buys us. This is the language of Hebrews, the language of 1 Corinthians, right? Jesus bought us with his very own blood, 1 Corinthians 6, that you were bought with a price. If we try to make the kingdom of God purchasable, it starts sounding a little funky. And Jesus hides us, right? We have language like John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The one who can actually secure things in the story is not us in the treasure in the field. It is the God who holds us in his hand. And not only that, but the rejoicing is also something Jesus does when he finds his treasure. Right? The author of Hebrews tells us, we, we covered this a little bit with the joy sermon in Advent, but for the joy set before him, which was not, the joy wasn't the death. And the, the joy wasn't even just the resurrection. Because Jesus had life with, God, with his father as the Trinity before that. But the joy is that on the other side of the cross, he would have you and me as part of his family. That's the joy. And he rejoices in those things. So let's get to the fish and the nets. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. Angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. They will throw into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just last week, we had, or last week, just a month and a half ago, um, we had the weeds and the weeds, the, the angels sort of separating out uh, in that story as well. And so I think there's some similar ideas certainly paired up again with a very similar passage. And similar to that story, you let down your net or you harvest, and you're going to get some of the good and some of the bad, right? It's very straightforward in, in that respect. Now, what makes them good or bad or righteous or evil? According to the parable. It's a trick question. Jesus doesn't actually tell us. He doesn't really explain what makes good and bad, what makes righteous and evil, in this story at least. So how do we know? What are identifiers then for righteous and evil? Once again, I think this is where it starts paralleling the previous story. The previous story was, that's not your job. Right? Because who does the sorting at the end of the story? Right? Angels come and, and do the sorting. That's not our job. It's not our job to be the sorters of it. And, and so, and once again, hear me. That does not mean there's not discernment around good doctrine and good theology and good teaching and good belief. All of that is true. I'm not anti-discernment. But at some point, when you start putting people into certain categories, I think we're doing a role at times that God has not given us necessarily to do. Because the business that God has given us to do and to be in, from, from his people on, from Abraham on, what does he tell Abraham? Bless the nations. That's your job. Bless those. And, and that's your job. He doesn't say, ever say to curse. He doesn't ever say to separate it out. He actually says, if somebody else does curse you, my job will be to deal with that. Your job is to go bless the nations. And he tells the disciples, your job, here's the command I give you. 
Go love, love me and go love your neighbors. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, I'm going to tell you to love your enemies. That pretty much walks the line between everybody from your friend to your enemy. So love everybody and go make disciples. That's the mission I give you. The mission I've given you is not to go who's in and who's out and trying to make those determinations. That's not the mission. And he's given us an agenda. And once again, these parables have often a deep connection to the Old Testament. Uh, There's a number of options, I think, here, but I tend to, once again, go towards Ezekiel because I think Ezekiel has a lot of um, parallels to the parables. Ezekiel 47 speaks of a fisherman catching fish and nets. And not only that, but even describes it as catching many kinds of fish in these nets. And it's very an image rich. And in that, in that story, well, in, in Jesus's parable, Jesus speaks of every kind. And he speaks of this image of the end of the age, which Ezekiel does too, that there's this many kinds of fish. And, and the image there is about the end of the age, that there's sort of this wrap up of the world. And what Ezekiel's pointing to is that there's all these Gentile nations that will be included in the kingdom of God. There's even a reference uh, to furnace in Jesus' parable, which I think goes back uh, the first time we actually see the the term furnace, fiery furnace. Uh, It's actually Sodom and Gomorrah before Daniel ever tells the story. And we already saw a parable just a couple sentences before this tied into that story. And it becomes, actually, it becomes this fascinating, uh, there's definitely not enough time for this, um, becomes this fascinating, the, there's, there's a huge story. It's called a midrash. Midrashes are these um, additional works used to like, explain the gaps that scripture has. Like, and one of those is around how, how Tehran uh, dies and sort of the Abraham story. And it becomes this massive story, this massive midrash that is really, really well known in the history of Israel. And in it, Abraham gets thrown into a fiery furnace. And, and, and in it, um, he has to endure and believe what God has said is true in the story. So actually, a really traditional Jewish interpretation is that the fourth person in the Daniel story is actually Abraham in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which should blow your minds. But anyways, <laughs> Abraham... Is, is there to persevere to his commitment to God in that moment. And so could Jesus be insinuating that the reason his followers should not be about the business of separating weeds from weeds and good and bad fish is that their primary calling in the world is to be a blessing to the very fish they might deem as evil or bad. Could it be that if they just did the work of God and judge the foreigner or outsider as weed or bad fish, if they did that work that God was supposed to do, that they would miss their calling. Like Ezekiel 47, or throughout the Old Testament, their calling to to the nations. And fall prey to the very judgment that awaited Sodom and Gomorrah. And it feels like we've heard Jesus talk about this before because he's a little bit of a broken record that perhaps this is sometimes the hardest lesson to actually learn which I think is why he goes to the very thing he goes to next. He says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. He said to him, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, and I want to stop there, um, every expert, right? That's the idea. All those people whose job it is to know the fullness of the teaching of God and interpret it well. Even the NIV uh, phrases it, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. Every teacher of the law that has to be willing to be a learner. Does it not feel like the whole vibe of the parables up to this point, right? We saw this in the soils. 
Are we willing to be the one who, who takes in the word and lets the word do the work? Like if you think you know, I think Jesus is saying you have to be willing to go unknown. You have to be willing to relearn. Like if you're not willing to be challenged around your old teachings with new teachings, you're like, you're like old wineskins and you're not ready for what is true, what is good and what is new. Right? It's the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, if you know what that is. It's like um, people think they're, they're like experts when they don't really know that much. And what makes someone really an expert down the road is actually getting to the place where you're like, I actually really have a lot to learn. And then you actually start learning what is good and what is true and what is right in the depths that you should. And I think Jesus invites a lot of people in. I think there's a lot of people and Pharisees and most of us probably are sitting there going, yeah, I know the Bible really well. And what Jesus might be pointing to is saying, you probably don't. And if you want to be a really good disciple, you need the humility to understand that there's still so much to learn and invites his people, I think, into that. And they're going to be like the master of a house who brings out his treasures of what is new and what is old. Those who are willing to humble themselves, to be learners, they will be the ones to bring treasure of what God has always said with the uniqueness that Jesus sometimes brings to what is already said, right? Because Jesus is doing that all over the place. No offense to one of the mega, mega pastors in town, but we should not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I think what Jesus has called us to do is to look at what is true and what is old and what is good that God has already given us through the lens of Jesus and to bring out what is, what is true, these treasures of old and new. So to get to a little bit of the application, the question is, have you really understood all these things? I sort of chuckle that everybody in the crowd apparently answered yes, right? <laughs> like, the disciples are already like, why do you speak in parables? This is really hard to understand. And then he's done speaking in parables, and the disciples are like, yeah, we got that, right? <laughs> and maybe, maybe it's the sort of Enneagram 5 in me where it's like, to, to, to ever tell that I don't know something is like painful to me. Um, maybe they're all like me. Maybe I'm projecting. But it's a question of us too. Have, have we really understood all these things? Because the more I learn about Jesus, the more I realize how much I do not understand all these things. Or at least how much I fail to really probably believe them to be true. And perhaps it's learning to be a learner again. Like I've spent the last three years kind of going back. I had my late 20s, early 30s kind of confidence that I just knew it. I picked up Calvin's Institutes and I was good to go. And it's been a bit of a, a relearning process. And being willing to let Jesus' words sometimes challenge my understanding. And also just challenge my theology. Like there, there was so much that emphasized the wretchedness of, of humans. So much in particularly my Reformed background, I was just, we are just wretched creatures. And I really appreciated when Matt, Matt Chandler, he kind of went viral for one of his, his teaching sections. And it was about, um, he went to this event, it was like purity culture event, and somebody was up there to speak about purity and sexual purity and all those things. And, and they delivered the message. And at the beginning of the message, this guy like gave a rose out and it was going to be passed around through the crowd. Everybody can like smell the rose and do whatever with the rose. And at the end of it, the, the, the speaker was like, 
talking about just how shameful and everything related to, to sexual sin was to a room full of teenagers, I'm sure. And then the rose, he's like, can I get my rose back? And the rose came up. And of course, at this point, it was like, most of the petals were gone. It was all beat up and stuff like that. And he stood there and, and the guy speaking was like, who would ever want this rose to kind of talk about like why you shouldn't get involved in sexual things before you're married? Like, who would ever want this rose? And Matt Chandler talks about how angry he was in that moment. Because he's like, Jesus wants that rose. And that changes the perspective on the whole story. And I think that's so true. That sometimes we emphasize, oh, I'm a wretched sinner. And hear me, yes, I, I, I am a, a sinner. I was an enemy to God, all those things. But yet God was willing to do everything to come here and love me in the midst of that. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. As, as, as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts in the Jesus Storybook Bible, this never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. And do we believe that that is actually true? Do you understand it? That you are incredibly loved. It's a story we encounter time and time again. So before you think I'm, I'm off my rocker, like Adam and Eve, they sin, they're hiding. What does God do? He pursues them, right? Where are you guys? Why are you hiding? He finds them. When Israel's struggling on the boot of Pharaoh, what does God do? He goes, he sends his messenger, and he goes and he rescues them, right? Or the prophets, the prophets tell these stories. And, and like the book of Hosea is this parable, basically, like this connection to Israel. And what is God supposed, doing through the prophet Hosea is telling that I am like a pursuing husband after his bride. Or Jesus will tell stories. Hey, there's a sheep that went missing from the hundred. There's a coin that was lost in some cushions. And what do the main characters of those stories do? They go and find it. He pursues and seeks, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And before you're like, well, God can't stand my sin. He's a cosmic Mr. Clean standing up there in his white shirt with beefy arms. He has OCD. He's repulsed by everything. He, he goes running away at the stand, sight of sin and dirtiness. He can't stand the presence, right? And I get some of that sentiment, but is that what the Bible ultimately communicates? And perhaps the story is that sin can't stand the presence of God. As God moves towards us, starts changing us, moving in us, calling us his people. And then he starts changing who we become and what our mission really is. To love others, to bless the world, to make disciples. And God gave his partner people a, a mission way back in Genesis to bless the nations, but and God will deal with the rest. And Jesus unpacks that more with love of neighbor and love of enemy and love of everyone. And there's many ways that that plays out. It's where the people of God, I would argue, can really stand apart from the love of the world. Because we all like talking about love, certainly nowadays, because love is love is love, right? Because that's real helpful to say. <clears throat> but perhaps, perhaps we'd be the, pe the people who really do love people who like vote differently than us, right? 
No one has relationships across political spectrums right now. At all. People can barely go to family reunions or family get-togethers because of struggles like this. We are deeply divided. Yet perhaps the ability to emphasize with someone we deeply disagree with, to perhaps understand how they could have arrived at a certain position or what influences they may have had in their lifetimes to lead them there, and to be a people to go, oh, man, I, I don't agree with anything you're saying, but I love you. I'm here. To love those by not engaging in social media. I'm, this is very personal, but I'm just not sure how much you can really love people across things like social media or even convince them of other things. It's, perhaps it's just me. I just think digital relationships are pointless. <laughs> Strong opinions. Love across differences. Think half people at your dinner table, even more from people with different socioeconomics, race or culture, belief, generational backgrounds. Jesus even said, when he was talking about enemy love, yeah, he said, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Like if your relationships are mostly people that are just like you, what, what, what good are you? You're just like the rest of the world. What's like wrong with it? He says, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Like, that's, that's how the world works. What does it look like to have other people over? And, and there, are, there are men and women in this church who do this regularly, who regularly invite people into their homes, friends and neighbors, like they have friends with their neighbors, they have strong differences and disagreements with, backgrounds and experiences. Look, we just announced Be the Bridge. Like, this is a huge part of Be the Bridge. What does it look like to actually sit down with people that come from different cultures and different backgrounds, to hear stories, to understand perspectives, to actually seek to love my, my black and brown brothers and sisters, and to understand their, what they're coming from, their perspective, their stories? It'll blow your mind. And if I'm to love like Jesus, I'm, I'm sharing a table. To love by sacrifice, Greater love has no one that would lay down his life for another, to sacrifice for another. And perhaps that's finances or time or relationships, serving with gifts, whatever, that we would be the people who are willing to take all that we have and hold those things open-handed. I think that would be incredibly distinct from the world, right? Like, just take, just take foster care. There are people in this church who welcome children to live with them in their homes in a moment of crisis, usually with backgrounds that include trauma and other things. There's a complicated, they're hard, they're messy, they're uncertain. And they have a role as a parent for a temporary amount of time. And these men and women sacrifice a lot. And they love by sacrifice for the sake of the other. To be a parent to a child experiencing the loss or removal of a, a family. I think we had 13 foster children come through this past year. It's incredible. 13 children who were loved well by men and women in this church. We love through historic wounds. It is God's people that recon, rec, uh, recognition of things like racial discrimination or oppression, injustices, that, that we can recognize those, we can talk and have real honest conversations around those. But we also, I think, have to be the place, and this might be the distinctive from the world, that we can figure out how to love through those things. Not just try to reset systems, but to actually love each other through them. And to love those who have hurt you. And I'm not suggesting 
you continue to pursue toxic relationships. Uh, I am not suggesting that this doesn't require a, a time and investment and healing and therapy and all that from trauma. I'm all for those things. But my secular friends have no interest. They're like, I'm cut off from all that. Anything that's going to make me uncomfortable, I'm done with. But I think the people of God are different than that because it's what Jesus did. Jesus, while standing on the cross, asked his father to forgive those who are hurting him. And I think we seek ways to love, even those that have caused us hurt and pain. We seek reconciliation where it can be found. And the last is that we love through sharing the good news. Like this is how we can deeply love our neighbors who don't know him. Like we are in the business of God, the great redeemer of this world. Taking the mess that we've all brought into this world and he forgave it. He reconciled us back to himself. And we love people to the point, we love people when we point them to this amazing truth. That God is the pursuer and gave up everything for you and me to forgive our sins, to rescue us from the enemy, and to bring us into a family, into his kingdom. So if we want to love like Jesus did, we tell them that the kingdom of heaven is like. Let them know what this God is like. Like a man who found a treasure in a field. That's how much God loves you. Kingdom of heaven is not a distant, unattainable goal that we strive to find, to hide, and to purchase through our own efforts. It's a relentless pursuit initiated by God who sees us as his treasure. He buys us, or he finds us, he buys us, he rejoices over us, and beckons us into a profound new way of life. And as we now navigate the challenges of discerning good and bad in this world and all that kind of stuff, let's remember that our primary calling is to bless and to love our neighbors and enemies. We do this embracing humility, learning constantly from Jesus along the way, bringing forth treasures old and new and that we would reflect the pursuing sacrificial love of our Father, sharing the good news of his kingdom in this world desperately in need, and in doing so, embody the very essence of the never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love of God. Amen. I'm going to invite Sarah up now, who will um, do what we've been doing, which is inviting us to, to take a pause, to take a moment, and reflect on some of these truths that we've unpacked today. To invite us to do that through prayer and to set up communion for us as well. Thanks.